Lekvoenza very kindly actually took me home on the tram um, on the first night of the curfew. He didn't obviously speak English and I didn't speak Polish, but we we, we simply nodded and exchanged and understood each other. Um, and I'm always grateful to him for that. This is Cold War Conversations. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I'm here to host this final program from the German Democratic Republic for you. During her visit to Poland in 1980, Jacqueline Hayden met the leading members of the Free Trade Union Solidarity, including the future president Lech Walesa. As a freelance journalist at that time, she reported on the events in Gdansk in August 1980 when the shipyard workers went on strike to demand the creation of free trade unions. Our chat includes some great descriptions of what she saw and heard at the time. It explains the problems facing the nascent free trade union, as well as details of the interview she carried out with General Jaruzelski and Cardinal Joseph Glemp, amongst others. Now, I really do need your help to support my work preserving Cold War history. I deliver four episodes a month, and all I'm asking for is $3, £3 or €3 Euros per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you can get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Jacqueline Hayden to our Cold War conversation. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to highlight our friends at the Cold War channel on YouTube. I've been watching their quality videos for some time and I highly recommend them. The videos are presented in an easily digestible format and cover some fascinating and sometimes little-known Cold War subjects. From the Kishtim disaster, the biggest nuclear disaster before Chernobyl, to the anti-Soviet guerrilla war in the Baltics, the episodes on Cold War TV provide a fantastic insight into areas of the Cold War not covered elsewhere. Just search for Cold War TV on YouTube. And now, back to our episode. It's a strange little tale. Um, I was becoming very interested in what was going on in terms of the changes um, that, you know, you could see happening in, in Eastern Europe. I had studied history, as I said, in, in, in UCD. And we had had the occasion in 1978 of the election of a Polish pope. And that w would have been a big story in Ireland at the time. And in and around the, the spring 
of um, 1980, I was out with a group of journalists and uh, young barristers, and I got into a heated debate with um, a, a barrister of my acquaintance who subsequently became a, a, a Supreme Court judge, uh, Adrian Hardiman, who sadly uh, died a couple of years ago. But Adrian was of the view that uh, journalists were all lefties. RTE, um, our national radio station, was full of lefties and that nothing critical of um, uh, of uh, a communist-oriented or communist-inspired um, government would ever get covered. And I said to him, don't be blooming ridiculous. I'd, um, I'm sure that if, um, you know, I went to X country in Eastern Europe, um, at that, you know, my journalism would be bought and paid for and, and listened to and read or whatever by whoever I um, sold it to. And he said, it won't. And he challenged me. And I said, well, do you know, I have been looking for a project. Um, the, a Polish pope has just been elected. Now's the time. And he said, well, if you get yourself out there, I will give you £500 uh, to support that endeavour. And all I want is for you to just work for a couple of weeks. So I said, game on. And uh, my, my first port of call was to work out who would uh, be interested in um, me stringing for them. And I went into the old Irish press, which is uh, sadly no longer with us. It was a very fine paper. And I met one of the feature editors, Campbell Spray, and various other people who commissioned me to do a series of articles on um, how it was that, you know, what was the background to this new Polish Pope, Cardinal Wojtyla, um, John Paul, and so that was the start. And then the second, um, in, in, and probably the, the more important thing I did was I really set about contacting anyone that I knew in journalism um, and in various sort of history departments and things in, in Dublin who would have had knowledge of Eastern Europe and of uh, particularly Poland. And so I got in touch with lots of people who were connected with d dissent, mainly a lot of them based in Paris. And I assembled the names of a whole group of people who, as it subsequently turned out, would be many of the mainstays uh, in solidarity. So I went off at the end of July went to England, got, went over to London, I should say, and got a plane to Warsaw with essentially a notebook in my hand and a very long list of addresses and telephone numbers. And um, uh, one of them in particular, a very famous uh, dissident called Jesse Kuron, um, lived quite centrally in Warsaw. So I simply got off the plane with my rucksack on my back and uh, arrived at his home, his apartment, only to find that he wasn't there. But there was a young um, uh, assistant of his who was a, a PhD student, a German uh, guy. And he said, look, Jacek's not here, but he'd really want to help you because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ha stuff happening. Um, and I suggest that you uh, get in a cab and go over to the home of uh, Jan Latinsky and Christina because uh, they speak English and um, they're very involved. They're, you know, great friends of Jacek. And that's what I did. And I went over to um, 
that very afternoon, I, I, I hopped in a cab and went over to a street in the centre of Warsaw called Ulitsa Visabelenia and found myself no- <laughs> knocking on the bell of Yannick and Christina uh, Latinsky. And Christina is my best friend to this, to this day, my absolute best friend, uh, and Yannick too. And uh, that was the start of it. Wow. 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 That, that's really interesting. I mean, um, Yasek Kuron was the head of the Workers' Defence Group, I think. Yeah, he was a very important um, d- dissident and would be would have been a little bit older than uh, some of the others that I began to to m- meet from. And you got to d- differentiate here between the in what you might, might call the intelligentsia, the in, uh, the the intellectual dissidents. Uh, you know, uh, many of them uh, sort of post-Marxists. Really, I suppose is the best way to describe it, but. Yasek was, you know, subsequently he was Minister for Labour in, in, in governments after 1989, uh, but, you know, a giant of solidarity. But before solidarity, he was a giant of core, uh, the Committee of Self-Defence. And it was into those circles that I was um, introduced by Jan and, and Christina. And literally, um, the, the, their flat was, um, was literally the hub for dealing with press queries for organization Yannick was um wrote the underground newspaper Robotnik the worker and his mother w- used to be uh, effectively the chief typist so she'd be sitting there in the um apartment with you know balancing this old Remington uh with Galois uh, fags, cigarettes, uh, hanging out of her mouth, and she would have been elderly at that time. But it was just, it was, it was like entering into, it was like something for somebody as young as I was at the time. It was like, it was like walking onto a, you know, a Cold War movie set or something. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was just, it was just amazing, and their kindness was incredible. You know. Um, so that was sort of that was the first that was the very I mean I never went home that night they kept me uh, I I I kind of slept on the floor and um they they didn't think it was a good idea because I was sort of staying in a in in just a student sort of hostelly type place and they they uh, they thought I looked like a little bit of a naive fresh Irish girl to be left um in that situation which naturally was greatly to my benefit and um so from there, Yannick offered to take me with him uh, to Gdansk. And he was, uh, I mean, he was doing, at the time, he was doing several things. Firstly, he was organising what would become the union, but it was obviously um, points of opposition, going into factories, going into meetings, sort of, not overtly, obviously, uh, very quietly. Um, and so, uh, apart from bringing me to various meetings he, he his his the, the big thing that he did for me was to bring me in the early part of uh, or late july early august up to gdansk and that's where i had the most amazing experience of meeting more or less the entire presidium of the, the what would become the free trades unions of the coast in anna valentinovich's flat um in um 
in and you know in in a, in a sort of suburb of of um of Gdansk. Wow. Talk about being in the the right place at the right time. It was incredible. I mean, uh, to this day, I, I you know, I sat there and one of the things that I always remember is thinking about who the key people were and oddly I I mean people now have different assessments and um, there are many controversial uh, sort of takes and analysis of of uh, Lech Wałęsa but in that room and oh because I was I was allowed back to meet to meetings um, over several days and Anna might have been trying to run a revolution but she also was hugely personally kind uh, at that stage I found her very 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 warm and you know she would be giving out poppy seed cake and and lemon tea to anyone who who came into that flat but the, the sort of people who were in that room were people like Ange Guazda Ange Guazda would have been one of uh, the very senior people who um in in the what would become the free trades unions of the coast and his wife Joanna uh, Bogdan Borisevich who would later become uh, the marshal in the SEM and Elena Piankovska his wife who actually with Anna uh, were the two women who stopped the strike from being um, as it were, <laughs> being stopped before it started. If you if, if you follow, there's a sort of a famous story about them. But Alina was a nurse in in the shipyards, and also present were people like Bogdan Lees. So there was a kind of a the core group that would um, eventually uh, be associated with the free trades unions of the of, of the coast uh, were present, yeah. and obviously others coming in a, in and out. But Lech Wałęsa was of course there but it it was only after a little while that I really began to kind of get the hierarchy um of what was going on in that room and uh, because Anna was she was older and she had such experience and she was she was the crane driver she had been other roles in 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 the shipyard but it was her and it was her sacking that had led to the strikes in in the first place but it, it was just as I reflect on it, um, I didn't come away thinking that um, Lech Wałęsa was the leader until it was it was afterwards that that became apparent, and of course that then subsequently led to um, a lot of disputes in solidarity many years later. But there was, um, I suppose, one of the, the 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 reasons I got to know President Wałęsa relatively well was that. At, at that point in in those meetings um in Gdansk in 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 the flat um after a couple of days um a curfew was imposed so leaving their apartment but needing to get back and uh, Lekvoenza very kindly actually took me home on the tram um on the first night of the curfew um and he didn't um obviously speak english and i didn't speak polish but we 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 simply nodded and uh, exchanged and understood each other, um, and I'm always grateful to him for that. Uh, it was just a, a personal courtesy and uh, that that meant a lot to me at the time. Obviously, that's amazing. And I mean, what? How did Lech Valencia come across to you? I mean, how 
what, what was he like as a as a personality? I mean, I'd, I've had heard him described that he could, you know, warm up a room in in no time. He he was such an effective. Uh, I'm trying to think of a word for it. Communicator, I guess. Yeah. It's 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 an interesting thing about Lech Wałęsa. Um, when if if I talk about that first time, that first meeting in the apartment, what came over was a was a person with amazing twinkly eyes and a a sense of humor, even though this was desperately serious stuff, you know. And all of these people were used to being harassed and in and out of jail. But how he came over was as a, as a very warm person for, for a start. At that meeting, as I say, I didn't think of him as the leader because to me what I was looking at was a committee of people. And Anna was very powerfully present in the room, as was um, Ange Guiazda. And, you know, when people read the story of, of Solidarity and how it eventually, um, you, you know, it, it fragmented, um, it, it, the, 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 you know, the strains of um, those differences, um, as I reflect now, can be seen from all of the individuals in the room. That they, in their separate ways, did end up in separate parts of the union, which if, if you start trying to retrospectively understand even today's contemporary politics of of uh, the, the, the Law and Justice Party piss uh, under um, Mr. Kaczynski and, of course, his brother, the president, dying in the Smolensk crash. Um, Anna Volontinovich died with him in that crash. And it was that wing of solidarity that she she later became part of. But I wouldn't have understood that at the time. You know, all I saw was this united group of, of people, whereas what we know uh, subsequently is is that solidarity broke on all kinds of lines, modernity, you know, the pluralist politics, um, uh, issues of, of, you know, secular versus um, a dominantly Catholic version and nativism, you know, to, to do with the, the, a notion of what Poland should be about. But... I suppose what I'm trying to, to to say here is is that all of that was there in that room, in that apartment, but not clearly visible to me at that stage as a 23-year-old who simply yeah. saw, uh, I mean, uh, call them whatever, you know, freedom fighters, uh, uh, potential revolutionaries or whatever. And I, I have this vision of this cramped, smoke-filled flat. Oh, there was a lot of stout smoking. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, did you did you meet uh, Danuta, um, Valencia's wife, as well? I, 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 funny enough, I did not meet her then. I didn't. I didn't because, as you know, they would have had. They had a lot of children, and yeah. so um, they, they, when Lek came to those meetings at that, that stage, Danuta wasn't there. But I did meet her subsequently, actually, um, in but many, many, many years afterwards in in Dublin at a se- at a seminar where she spoke about her book. On that trip, on that that first um, visit to Poland, I. I met a number of people, and one of the people that really impressed me was um, Spesek Bujak. He was um, 
an electrician um, from the Ursus factory. But he subsequently, in, in years afterwards, he became the leader of uh, the Solidarity Underground. And I was introduced to him very early on in, in my visits by Janusz Onoszkiewicz, who many people would know as the British-educated mathematician who was uh, the voice and the spokesman of uh, Solidarity from 1980 onwards, but it was, most especially people would remember his face from 1989 from the Roundtable Talks. But Special Buyak was a really, really, really special person, and he was very close to my friends, the Latinskis. Um, so he was another in- incredibly um, decent. It, it's just hard to describe sort of uh, the, the sense I had at the time of just meeting such decent heroes you know because mm. mm. he was the solidarity leader that managed to stay on the run the longest i think under martial law yes he did he escaped uh, and therefore led um solidarity into the underground um and indeed i have to say i i i, I remember one particular interview with him it, it one of one of the later interviews i did with him he, he he was a very he's a very open and honest person and um his insights into the pressure on families that was created by the men being underground you know was was deep deeply honest actually because it's 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 a delicate matter but obviously when people's private lives are very shuffled up and um and they're on the run um, you know, pe- people perhaps form war relationships for the want of the, a better word. But he was one of the people that, as a man, I found it very interesting to talk to about that issue because he was he he wasn't trying to hide it or cover it up. And and you know, he said it did put a, a lot of stress on women, both the women who were perhaps were left overground and the women who perhaps fell into relationships underground. And it was just. Uh, I, I I have to say I have huge respect for him uh, for his honesty. Yeah, yeah, no that that that's interesting. Uh, you know, having that openness from somebody, and you know, hearing what you in your heart knows, he's actually telling me the truth here. He's not trying to sugarcoat this. No, <laughs> no, and it was something that some of the you know the women that I would have uh, spoke to over the years would have referred to. But it was a difficult matter to. It was. It wasn't every uh, male activist that necessarily wanted to, to sort of uh, discuss that part of things, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it's a you know it, it's an aspect of being underground that people don't necessarily um, you know think of or, or have heard about because people don't talk about it. No, <laughs> that's the truth. Um, just go, going back to. 1980 and and those meetings in in that flat did you know the leadership or all those people think they were actually going to be able to get a, a free trade union at that point um i often i often think about about that i think it no nobody was expecting that essentially something that was dealing with very immediate 
demands was going to turn into something which was essentially the genesis of the collapse in 1989. But it, it is interesting to remember that um, the, the women in particular, and when I say the women, I mean Alina Pien, the late Alina Pienkowska and Anna Valentinovich, were really um, qu- quite central in framing the demands in a more human rights uh, type characterization, rather than just we want to get back to work and we we don't want these price increases. The initial demands, which were so um, much more modest, but you've you've also got to remember that apart from what happened initially in relation to to the strike the, or the beginnings of the strike, the really important development is is when you have the people from core um coming to support the workers because if 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 the genesis of the collapse of communism in Poland is to be understood in any frame it has to be that it was this unique coming together of the church uh dissident intellectuals uh, the intelligentsia and activist uh workers and so when I went up uh, I, and was assisted to get to Gdansk by Jan Latinsky, that was literally what he was doing there, was going to be part of the intelligentsia support for the workers to help them with things like uh, publishing their underground um, uh, newspapers. In other words, uh, publishing details about the what was happening with the strikes. So in, in the weeks that followed... The, I suppose basically from about the second week in August, you had the likes of Tadeusz Mazowiecki, a um, player in the, the, the uh, 1989 Roundtable and subsequent politics, but also Bronisław Geremek, as I said, the people like Janusz Onoszkiewicz, Jasekura, my friend Jan Latinsky. They, they became key advisors to the strikers and in in so doing um it it meant that the government in in the form of the uh, government nego- communist government negotiators were not just dealing with brave workers they were dealing also with the intellectual support of um dissidents such as Geremek, such as Mazowiecki, etc., who came ultimately became those two in particular became the, the seriously close advisors to Lekvoenza. Right, right. So w- when you say they were they were sort of using human rights demands, were they using the the Helsinki Accords or details of that? Well, I mean, it was the beginning. It was it was it was you know. In, the 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 point is is that the characterization of uh, the demands developed over that month with the input of uh, I mean Bronislaw Geremek sorry to cut across myself is an you know is a was until his recent death uh, you know a, a very well known historian and um, so there was a, a lot of um, intellectual underpinning that that was was there to support 
the characterization of the de- demands and and so what i'm saying is is that the the awareness of human rights norms and expressing um demands in terms of such norms was something that was was Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more was natural or, 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 or obvious to the intellectual uh, dissidents, you know, who, who had been very active. I mean, certainly from the mid-70s. I mean, you can trace CORE back to um, earlier than that, but people normally talk around 75, 76 is when the Committee of Self-Defence um, was set up. And it was, of course, based on principles, um, you know, uh, legal and human rights principles and their objectives were based on those, I suppose, what you could call the, the principles we now associate with, you know, post-enlightenment modernity, if you want to express <laughs> it in a posh fashion. But that's essentially what those people brought to the table in uh, Gdansk. And when I say to the table, I mean to the table um, that uh, where the negotiation uh, on the 21 demands was uh, being um, conducted. Yeah, yeah. I, you said earlier that, that there was a, a period where the strike might have failed. There's a, that's a, yeah, it's a very, um, you know, there's an awful lot of controversy <clears throat> in and around I suppose the, the the role of Lekvawensa, and um, and indeed on um, whether or not Solidarity 1980 has and what it promised was vindicated by the solidarity that emerged after 1989. I mean, essentially, if you want to understand the political landscape in Poland today and the deep cleavage uh, that. Um, is underpinned by a row over how you interpret um, the round table and whether whether it was a sellout by elements of solidarity to the communist side and that in fact it doesn't represent a revolution, that it represented almost a a, a kind of a negotiated uh, deal whereby the communists got to retain power. I mean, that's essentially the the kind of discourse that is derived, that is central to the current uh, law and justice PIS government's assertions about, you know, the Voenza sold out solidarity. But it's easy to look at that in in retrospect, though, to come up with that interpretation. (laughs) Yes, but you see, I suppose what one of the things I've done in in my academic work since then is to try and understand where this comes from. And it does come from the fact that you had 
such different constituencies, for the want of a better word, in that room, in Gdansk, but in other parts of the Free Trade Union of the Coast, of the um, rural solidarity, of all of the different branches of solidarity that came together. I mean, it is a cliche for me to say that solidarity was an umbrella. It was an umbrella under which so many different uh, interests uh, took cover. And it was an umbrella with which, 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 under which people who shared one common aim, which was to uh, to essentially overthrow communism in Poland, but of course after eighty nine, you see the breakup of that because what you see is that that people have different interests as, as they do in any society um, and what I'm trying to say is, is that I can I can look back now and I can say to you well I met Władysław um, Frasyniuk uh, at that same time um, uh, when I was in Poland in 1980 he was down in uh, Wałbrzych uh, down in near Wrocław and he would have been a, 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 a characterized as a worker solidarity person, but he w- has ended up in the liberal end of the, soli- the post-solidarity parties. Whereas Anna Volantonovich and the Guazdas main, essentially maintained that the solidarity revolution was robbed, that it was stolen, that Vauenza was a an agent, Agent Bolek, uh, famously uh, characterized. And that, in turn, you see, as I said when we were talking earlier, I mentioned that Anna Volantonovich died on the plane crash in Smolensk um, when they were on their way to commemorate the uh, Katyn massacre. But the fact that she was on a plane with Kaczynski, it tells you uh, about the branch of the post-solidarity groupings that she moved to that she identified with whereas Frasenuk and Vowensa and Onishkevich and all those other people um they were inclined towards essentially a, a liberal both economic liberal and um from the issue from the perspective of social issues a liberal wing of that umbrella so i'm saying that the fragmentation was there and and in you know you can see it in personified in the people that were in that room but what what that was covered simply because there was one aim there was one goal yeah yeah no that's interesting that that that's interesting i mean what what's your view on the valencia bolek I, I i i think i think a number of things i think it was probably hard to be anybody connected with an enterprise in the 1970s and not have had your collar touched by a member of the secret police. And I I don't think that that make, makes Lech Wałęsa uh, a communist agent or spy. No. And there are too many people um, who I would know and trust as people who, who would not take that view and and yes he might have had a, a, he may have had conversations with secret police but you know the, the, this issue is so complicated and uh, and is 
underpinned by um, all sorts of score settling and um, rows. But when you look at what I would call the sane end uh, of the people that I met in that room in 1980, Bogdan Borisevich, Alina Pienkowska, um, and other people like Bogdan Lys, um they certainly did not take the view that uh, Lech Wałęsa sold out the uh, sold out solidarity. Um, I just think it's it's nuanced and it's it's complicated, um, and that that storyboard has been used very effectively by those who want to say that 1989 um, and the round ta- table was a sellout. Yeah, it sort of fits the fits the the narrative i mean you'd be surprised yeah. if there wasn't a file on him to be honest well that's the point i mean it, 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 the, the, you would be surprised if there wasn't a file i mean all all of these people um w- would have been subjected in some shape or form my friend christina was it it was it was a regular part of their lives to have secret police banging on the doors, coming to their home, being arrested, being in jail. You know, how many people must have, uh, in some shape or form, said something just to get themselves out of a situation? It doesn't make them no. traitors. No, and I think that this is the thing. It's easy for people to to look at it in certain ways, but when you're actually in that situation and somebody is threatening the safety of your family or or yeah. lo- loads of other things what what would you do in that situation and i'm yeah. pretty certain i would probably act the coward and i i would have given them the information um just to go back to uh gdansk in 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 1980 were you there when the agreement was signed uh, actually, I was. I was. I was not. I was. I was actually down in um, in Krakow uh, by that stage. So I was in Poland, but actually uh, away. And one of the reasons for that was that I started to. I was with Yannick on a number of occasions, and I started to feel the attention of uh, the security um, services. Uh, we, I was getting followed. It was becoming a little bit scary, um, and Christina, in, my friend in particular, was anxious um, that I take a breather before something unfortunate happened. And um, I went with um, a very well-known Dutch journalist called Dick for Cake, who was one of the Dutch journalists that went in with the American forces into wow. Auschwitz. And so I, I actually went from Gdansk to Warsaw and then went down to Krakow where which is very near Auschwitz and so I I, I was there in, at that time but I was also working uh, to, to interview as many people connected with uh, solidarity in that re- region and indeed um, I w- also went to Krakow because um, one of the people who um, had been very close to Cardinal Wojtyla um, worked for the, uh, a newspaper. To God, uh, actually, I can't pronounce it, so I won't say it. But worked for the um, one of the Catholic newspapers in Krakow, 
And so I uh, spent some time interviewing uh, people there and in, in particular his daughter, uh, Rasha Vashnikevska. Um, so I was I was in I was in I was in the south um, at the time of the actual agreements, but then came back up to to Warsaw. Um, and then subsequently also spent a good bit of time on subsequent trips, like nearer to like end of um, November, December, I was in Poland again. And that was very interesting because um, Yannick in particular, I, I was able to accompany. He was essentially speaking to workers groups and helping them set up uh, branches of solidarity. And I remember traveling with him down to his own, uh, what would be his own constituency after 1989, uh, in the Wrocław region, and going out to Svidnitsa to some of the factories and uh, being um, present uh, for meetings, which is, was essentially helping workers to uh, organize branches of the union, which was really Absolutely fascinating. I, I'll never forget there was one place where it was 20 feet deep in snow. <laughs> I remember think, thinking that I was I was just going to die of frostbite before I got my stories back, you know. Uh, I'd been sent back uh, uh, for a second visit by the Irish press at that stage. And in fact, um, the Irish Times had commissioned me as well because they liked the first work I'd, I'd, I'd put out in, in uh, August. And how, how were you getting your, your stories back? Were you recording them or writing them? No, at that stage, I was, I was, I was, um, I was writing. Um, and I was until um, the uh, phone lines in Yannick Litinsky's house uh, apartment were um, blocked. I was um, I was getting them out that way. I, I was ringing, and then I was um, and obviously when I came home in the middle of August, I uh, produced some um, articles, uh, the ones commissioned for the um, Irish press, and then I was commissioned by the old Sunday Tribune. Um, the Irish Times uh, for the um, November December visit, where I did a, the, the the real job they wanted me to do there was to to look at how the union was being established in the region. So that involved an awful lot of of um, an awful lot of moving around the country, and so I would use the um, you know the, the telex and the facilities that would have been uh, afforded uh, to me by the uh, Polish authorities at the time because I remember there was a period of of freedom particularly after the uh, the Gdansk agreement in the 31st of August so there was a period before um, it, it, you know in the coming months when um, you were being supported to some extent by um, the press office, the, the government press offices. Yeah, you know? yeah. You said that you were being followed by the SB, the um, the Polish secret police. Where where were you staying? I was staying with Yannick and Christina, and um, we were. I, I, I oh, there were several occasions. So um, I remember, in particular, uh, it was in and around um, the old uh, Victoria Hotel in Central Warsaw. And uh, there was also a very famous hotel called the Europejski, uh, which is near Novi Sad. And um, the an, a lot of the um, foreign journalists, particularly some of the British ones, um, Michael Dobbs and Manchester Guardian, I remember Dessa Trivison from the Times. Several of them were staying there, and I remember. Uh, 
at one stage feeling that the 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 police were getting so close to me and I felt so kind of under pressure I just ran into the into the Europejski and I knew that they were I can't remember the number of the room but I remember it was on the first floor I think and I remember running up the grand staircase and just going in and shouting my name's Jacqueline Hayden and I'm an Irish journalist <laughs> and it was just I was I felt and then I felt oh my god I've just just, just well just made, I'm a child you know and um but they they did they were really kind i got i got to know michael very well actually he was so supportive and 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 uh, helpful um really helpful um but i was with yannick a few times on the street when you know they'd be so close you could close you could feel their breath and it that was then that christina said jack you know i i i think uh, i think i i think you should go, you know go get out of here for uh, a, a few days and that's when i went down with uh, D- dick for cake down to to crack right. uh, and we went to auschwitz but um and when i when i left the first time i i actually had um because it was ordinary old you know um box camera and everything so i had i put my i put my little um rolls of film <laughs> in my socks i i truly felt like a uh you know a spy um in my boots and that's how i carried my my few photos out um and i i did that on more than one occasion i i, I can tell you and i was there on a uh, visitors uh, uh, visa. That was my other problem. Um, uh, I mean, in a way, I could have been legitimately arrested, but um, so I, I, I kind of, um, you know, ca- carried my minimal um, tools of my trade, um, if, you know, in my clothing, basically. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, it sounds like such heady times and so much hope in the country as well. I, I was very young, and I remember walking in and seeing Regina, um, Yannick's mother, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know. With the Galois, yeah. With the Galois <laughs> and with the Remington and her work. And it was just, I just felt this powerful feeling of these people are so determined. And here am I, you know, bourgeois you know, everything going, you know, life is easy. And, you know, I remember the second time I visited Christina saying to me, you know, um, well, we loved you because you did two things. You did bring the toilet rolls, but you also recognized I was a woman and you brought me some perfume. And so it wasn't just all, you know, basic things. And we kind of, I just had such respect for them because in any other world at that time I mean these were hugely talented people my friend Christina was a child psychologist um, a, a really brilliant person from a, 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 a village up in called Czarna up in the north of Poland and Yannick was a really is an amazingly uh, bright and intellectual person and you know they could have they could have just gone along with it and they would have done very well. Thank you very much. So I was, I just felt this enormous sense of privilege. And I think that that was something um, 
um, that was felt by others. I, um, I, uh, there, there was a, there's a very well known British journalist called Tim Sebastian who was c- covered the strikes a lot, and he 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 was on to the apartment one night when I was there, and it was just when curfew was beginning to happen in 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 Warsaw, and we were getting very worried that the phones would be put down, and. I I remember just talking to him briefly for a few minutes, but he you could tell the respect and 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 awe that he had in his voice for uh, Christine and Yannick because they would have been huge, you know. They were the the flat was the hub for dealing with the press, um, and he very kindly took a message just to tell him I I was just recently married to, to tell my husband that I. I was a bit lost, but I wasn't dead or anything. So <laughs> he very kindly rang up RTE in in, in Dublin and um, and and passed that message on. But it was just a time when, if you met journalists who knew the dis- dissidents well, it was it it was a very respectful, um, re- in awe relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and these people are just taking such huge risks. Yeah, because they're in jail. I mean, it's it's it was it was you know when I talk to the amount of times that people were in and out of jail, and it's it, when we when we read books about you know the different regimes in communist um, Eastern Europe, um, um, you know people use terms like you know one was harsher one was whatever at the Mm. end of the day which of us would ever have liked to have as my friend christina did spent her christmas you know after martial law in jail in a room with no windows with snow and ice um sitting on the ledge and nothing but the company of, of women in a crowded cell to keep spirits up who 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 would want that for themselves? And that's why, you know, talking about sort of um, more benign forms of communism or more one regime as opposed to another, it's 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 wonderful, except if you're living it. Yeah, yeah. And when you were talking to them, obviously they had hope that things were going to change, but did they ever say it might it will probably be 20 years before things change or something like that. Did they have a timeline in, in mind at all or, or not? I think different. I, I, I think, I think different people had, had uh, different notions. I mean, the one thing I'm always very conscious of is that um, if you think about it from the perspective of sort of academic literature or, or, or journalistic writing, there was nobody predicting the demise of communism in 1989. Um, And I know in particular from, there was one series of conversations that I had with Janusz Janusz who became the first um, non-communist and non-military, he was Minister for Defence in in the first government. And Janusz was the Oxford-educated mathematician who was the spokesman for Solidarity. And I spoke to him the two, as you know, two sets of uh, elections in in first round and second round in 1989. Uh, June fourth was the first one, and 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 when uh, in speaking to him, then I remember absolutely 
his shock at the result of the election. He said they were not ready for government. They did not want to govern. They it it, it would be it, it it they simply weren't prepared. And that if you think about that, that within literally a number of weeks, the end of August, whenever it was, nineteen eighty nine, you have the first semi a, a coalition uh, between the various parties, and you have uh, Yaroslavsky then um, elected as president. That that all of that happened so quickly to people who 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 had thought of literally incremental steps and change. Mm. And I said earlier that in 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 eighty there were some people looking at just the um, the immediate issues of um getting people out of jail because they'd been ja- been jailed for protest um re- reducing price hikes which had led to the hardship which in turn was another factor in the scri- strike and then there were those who were trying to f- to frame it as in other words to soften the regime in terms of uh, as as we discussed a human rights perspective so 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 you've got that then but nobody is sitting thinking that the end of the regime is nigh and when you speak to to people about their perspective in and around 85 86 87 but bef- just before the regime began to overtly seek a negotiation with um people from solidarity um around the period when it was happening for very good reasons because the the Soviet regime itself was beginning to crack. It could no longer financially support its its commitments to the Eastern Bloc, yeah, yeah, and all the other international factors that were happening happening at that time. When you talk to people, for instance, um, uh, like Adam Micknick about what was happening, say in relation to, I suppose, the softening, you know, the 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 ending of the Brezhnev. Doc- doctrine, the beginnings of the o- opening up in in Russia, nobody was interpreting those in a kind of a in 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 an immediate time frame. It was very difficult to know what was actually going on. What did Perestroika uh, actually mean? What was was Gorbachev? What was Gorbachev actually doing? And I, I particularly Adam Miknik and particularly Yanush um, Onoskevich always said in interviews with me that you cannot look back and say, well, clearly he was signaling from about 1984-85 that um, changes were coming. Uh, and they would say there were so so many other voices saying other things that there was too much noise in and around that space for any Polish uh, dissident or solidarity uh, member to 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 identify in other words what was the seeds of collapse it's it's far too much a retrospective analysis yeah yeah absolutely i was interested in some of the people you interviewed in in later years like the early 90s yes uh you spoke with general yaroselsky yes what was that like I, well i um I met with 
General Yaroslavsky on a couple of occasions. And they were very, very, very long interviews. And I had initially met with his spokesman, Jan Bistiga. And I think that was how, in the end, I managed to get the interview with General Yaroslavsky because I had interviewed Bistiga on a number of uh, occasions. And uh, he was fascinating in terms of how you saw people who had been totally behind the um, Polish United Workers' Party changing their stripes when the transition happened. And I was very conscious in the interviews with General Jaruzelski from the earliest ones to the later ones, that he was very conscious of wanting to inform the public record about himself. Um, Again, a hugely controversial figure. He was personally a pleasant person to interview. He was always courteous. Uh, He wasn't a rough man in any way. Uh, He was always at pains to explain his own sense of honour and what his loyalties were to. And he would have always expressed that in terms of his loyalty to the Polish military. And others would sort of say, well, he would, wouldn't he? Because that is his way of exonerating his role in in various activities, including, you know, the introduction of martial law and the violence that was associated with it, earlier violence um, that was associated with suppression of of various um, um, activities and and strikes, etc. in the 80s. But I have to say that I do believe that he was genuine in his dealings with the solidarity uh, leaders and the solidarity um, negotiators in and around the period running up to and you know after the around the the round table and and I think that because I do believe he was a very intelligent man and whatever he did or didn't do in the past he saw change and he saw the possibility of being able to bring something over the line with the likes of Wałęsa, Mazowiecki, Bronisław Geremek and others. I mean, I asked him, I, I suppose I interviewed him for long, on, on three, I, I met him on more than these occasions, but I interviewed him at length on three different occasions, 92, 99 and 2007. And his story didn't change. And I'm always struck by a photograph that you may or may not have seen, which was published a number of weeks before he died. Um, and it's a picture of uh, General Yaroselsky in bed um, in hospital, the famous sunglasses on. And shaking his hand is Lech Wałęsa. And to me, there's a lot of ways of reading that. To me, it's a very symbolic photograph, which could be interpreted as a reconciliation and acceptance of the, the nature of what the round table was, which was a political deal to produce a result without violence. Others 
simply say that was, you know, the the two traitors shaking hands. I, I personally don't see it that way. No, no. I mean, Yaroselsk is an interesting character because the, the reason for the tinted glasses was he was in a Soviet labor camp. And his eyesight was damaged there. So, but he, his eyesight was damaged by 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 frost glare. The the glare. Yeah, that you snow get blindness. Him. Yeah, mm. yeah. So he was almost well. I I'm, I can't recall exactly why he was in the labor camp, but obviously he he ended up the wrong side of the the Soviet authorities. So he he's not what you think when you actually go back and look at his full story. Is is he a hero or, or a traitor is a kind of a simplistic way of expressing it. And in fact, in, in my earlier book, I, I, I had a chapter on Yaroselsky. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy. It, let, let me put it this way. Politics is often regarded as a dirty game, but it's a great alternative to people shooting each other. And the fact that a deal was done by somebody of Yaroselsky's level, who's undoubtedly um, a Polish military person, but who had an allegiance to the uh, philosophy or uh, of a foreign power, i.e. the Soviet Union, the, the fact that he was proud to have taken part in that negotiation and that the result it gave he he accepted and he uh, while he he would have on occasion said you know that if they had done things differently they might have ended up with um, a negotiation that would have left the communists with uh, in a better position but nonetheless it was honored to me, that's what politics is. So I don't have Polish blood in my veins. So I can't feel the pain that people whose family was um, killed or assaulted or, or beaten by troops that General Yaroselsky ordered out. I, d- I can't feel that. But what I can um, respect is the desire, the, the desire to make a deal work that would, and I believe it was his view, create a better Poland. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's always tricky because, as we said earlier, you, you look at these things with hindsight and it, it, it it's always difficult to get get into the shoes of somebody who was there at the time and the information that they had to hand. Because, you know, you take the example of martial law being declared in December eighty one. There was sort of a a high, well, a a reasonably high likelihood that the Soviets were going to intervene. Polish history in terms of fighting invasions, it wouldn't have been Czechoslovakia 68 where people wouldn't have fought. It would have been bloody if the Soviets had come in without without a doubt. And and I'm sure that's what Jaruzelski was looking at and thinking, there's two evils here. This is the lesser of two. Well, I, I, I agree with you completely, and I, I spent a bit of time trying to read the documentation and the material that was released in Russia in the early mid nineties, all about you know who knew what from the uh, Politburo, uh, who 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 was talking to whom in Warsaw, 
And of course, you know, there are those that will argue that the, that, that Yaruzelsky was the one that was doing the, 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 the dirty work and that, the, you know, the Soviets weren't going to in, in, invade, but he was using that as his raison d'etre for doing so. Uh, again, it's a, it's a bit similar to the point I was making earlier about, you know, wh- what people understood in Poland about what Gorbachev was doing with perestroika and with the opening up um, and whether or not it, it, uh, you, you know, what was it a signal of? I think that in times of limited information and huge uncertainty and, and where it is very difficult to be totally clear about what the strategic intentions and the capacity um, of various players and actors is, that in this case, I think that it, it makes logical sense to me that Yaruzelski did believe that if he didn't contain with martial law, that something worse was going to happen. But as I say, that is just my analysis, having done my best to understand the documentation uh, uh, that that is now available yeah yeah no that that's really interesting and uh, and another character you spoke you you spoke to was general kishak oh kishak yeah yeah he's the man who ordered the death of father poppy wushko in 1984 because he's he's quite a controversial character isn't he very general kishak was uh, the interior minister uh, who was responsible, as I said, who was responsible for the murder or arranging the murder of Father Popibushko. And he is an extremely uh, controversial figure. And while um, while he was a player at the, at the time of the round table, I think that his view, and I, the, the one thing that um, fascinated me about my interview with him was that he uh, was reading at the time some counterfactual analysis of what would have happened had di- a different electoral system been used in the first and second round of the round table, or or sorry, the first and second round of the elections in 1989. And I don't want to get too technical on this because it's to do with uh, basically using, um, um, you know, straight past the post, first past the post, as opposed to more uh, proportional systems. And I I have done some work on this, but essentially um, had a different electoral system being used, it is... Uh, most unlikely that the solidarity landslide would have happened. And what General Kishchak, um, when I met him, was saying about this was was very, very interesting because he uh, was characterizing this as proof, proof that they did not have to essentially um they didn't have to lose the vote and therefore the 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 end result could have been different now as i said he he's very much he was very much a hard line he was very much the henchman of the of the of the regime and he he is not somebody who i think uh whom history has been uh particularly kind to etc but he undoubtedly made it clear to me that he he regretted deeply regretted the mistakes that were made in the negotiation on the communist side 
during the roundtable, which led to this electoral outcome, which he truly believed uh, could have been avoided. That is really interesting that I haven't I hadn't heard that there were other electoral systems being contemplated there. It's it's something that I actually did quite a bit of work on. There's a, a, a great Polish political scientist called Marek Kaminski, who first wrote the paper, which essentially was a counterfactual analysis of different the differential effect of voting systems on the outcome um, in 1989. And in fact, um, one of the things that I really tried to understand for uh, a book I did on the collapse of communist power, looking at it from the, the perspective of what the communists negotiated, I, I, I was able to establish by talking to various uh, experts uh, and academics that essentially Yaroszewski was told that they should have used an alternative voting system. Um, Mr. Rakowski, the last prime minister, said to me he didn't know what they were thinking when they went ahead with the voting system because they had been told. They had advice from Professor Ange Verblan direct to um, General Jaruzelski telling them to uh, use an alternative uh, voting uh, method. But one of the problems was, as uh, Miroslav Rakowski, the last prime minister, said to me, was that he said, we were caught in a frame of mind where we always won, but we'd forgotten that the rules had changed. And we were relying, he said, on opinion polling, which, of course, was opinion polling under conditions of unfreedom, where everyone said, yes, they wanted to vote uh, for the party. Um, And Miroslav Rakowski said that to me in one of the earliest interviews. And uh, he he, he said it was just one of the most tremendous mistakes of the roundtable negotiation. There were others, but that's a pretty big one. Have you seen that Netflix series, 1983? I haven't actually. Have you heard of it? I've heard. Yes, I have, but I haven't. I haven't. Uh... It's it's really interesting. It's like you know, communism hasn't fallen in Poland, and it's sort of taking place in 2003, and there's a uh, an an uprising. But it it's re- it's an interesting counterfactual. I I've... I love the counterfactuals. Yeah, no. So I love the what ifs. And if the elections after the round table hadn't been a solidarity landslide, is a is an amazing um, what if. Wow. Yes, it's a it's 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 a very in, in there's an there's a couple of other parts to that uh, counterfactual analysis, and it's all it relates to the negotiating position of the uh, of the communist side negotiators. Uh, and one of the mistakes they 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 made was agreeing to the setting up of of, uh, of the new office of president, because eventually, of course, that was something that Vowenza won. And again, it was it was all these incremental steps that created this sense of massive change. The other uh, point was that they set up uh, the Senate, the Senate, and the voting system they uh, chose for that ended up with basically all um, members bar one being um, from Solidarity. It's it's an interesting um, analysis of the bargaining position of the Communist Party negotiators that they relied on poor information, number one, that their negotiating strategies were not fully informed, number two, and that often, crucially, they ignored advice 
uh, as in the case when um, General Jaruzelski actually ignored the advice from Professor uh, Andrzej Verblan, who wrote to Rukowski, setting out a whole set of conditions about what the uh, electoral uh, institutions should be. And they were ignored because, in my view, as Mr. Rakowski said to me, because we were still thinking under the old conditions, we were still thinking the old rules applied, but the game had changed. So d- did the ultimate decision around the electoral systems be the Communist Party's decision or was that negotiated as to what electoral system? It was nego- it was negotiated, but, you know, there's, the, it was negotiated that the, the roundtable um, had a number of competences, but they were, you know, they were called, there was the political table, there was the economic table, the social table. So they were, they were like comp- tables with different competences where negotiations went on. But these um, institutional negotiations were, I've analysed them in detail, you know, the the decision to uh, set up a Senate, the the decision to have uh, a university elected president, and then the other decisions about the the SEM, how it would be elected. And essentially, I mean, without going into detail, the, the, the Communist Party side negotiated rules that were the least optimal for them. They were the ones that gave them this slant, landslide against them. Uh, whereas, as as um, uh, Professor uh, Kaminsky argues um, in, 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 in with great ability and great detail, you know, e- even slightly modified voting rules would have uh, given a different outcome, which in turn could have impacted on the effect of this, you know, a domino, this effect of it, it, it being such a crushing defeat. And it wouldn't have been if it had, if it had, if it had been yeah. uh, uh, under a different set of electoral rules. It's why actually in, in subsequent um, Polish institutional rulemaking, they, they have modified their electoral systems on many occasions in the 90s and um, the even the constitution itself wasn't ratified for many years because the lessons of of the impact of 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 the minutiae of the rules that one uses for electoral purposes that you know they do matter they're what people think of as niggly boring rules but they had a profound impact on the trajectory of uh, transition in Poland. So did the solidarity negotiators know what the optimum form of voting would be for them? I don't believe that they were as concerned about it because they didn't anticipate the victory. I think they were focused on other things. But when you talk to academics about those institutional decisions. Um, I think it's reasonable to uh, interpret what they argue is that you would have expected the communist side to have been very careful about the rules it chose because they were trying to retain power, presumably. And, And yet they literally, literally ignored expert advice from within their own ranks that would have steered them in a completely different direction. Um, just a couple of things I wanted to just ask you about. Adam Michnik's an interesting character. I mean, he's a long-term opposition activist, I think, from the 1960s, but he defends Yaroselsky and Kishak against prosecution. Well, he formed a very – Adam Michnik would have had 
very good relationship with General Yaroselsky. And perhaps I'd like to characterize how I understand, in the context of other history, um, Adam Micknick would, I think, take the view that a deal was done between General Yaroselsky, with Kishchak being probably almost... To, to, to understand it, I'm thinking of our own Irish history here and our our our, our treaty um, which caused our civil war, you know, in in, in uh, 1921. And there is a perspective that says it doesn't matter who you did the deal with. And in the Irish case, it would be with Perfidious Albion, you know, it would be with Britain, that the deal was agreed and that the the individuals um, and their, their historical legacy is not the issue, that it was agreed that there would not be prosecutions um, after uh, the agreement and that General Yaroselsky and even Kishchak should not be um, prosecuted because that was the bargain. And that goes back to what I was saying about I suppose, the idea of politics as a much better device for people managing to live together rather than people shooting each other. There could have been a very violent change in in Poland, and there wasn't, nor was there in the Czech Republic, Hungary. You know, and you either respect, you know, the, the idea of the deal and that the deal involves an agreement about what happens to those who are on you know, inverted commas, losing side. Uh, and that, I think, would be almost where it begins and ends with Adam Micknick. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Can we just touch on Cardinal Glemp? Yeah. Um, because we haven't really talked that much about the Catholic Church, yet you did some interviews with Cardinal Glemp, who was the head of the Catholic Church. Yes. From 81, I think, till 2009. In talking about the role of the Catholic Church, it cannot be underestimated um, in terms of its importance um, in 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 this idea of that what solidarity and was about and what 1989 was about was this coming together of these three branches of Polish society: the the church, uh, the intellectual dissidents, and indeed the workers, and that that's what made it a, a, a unique revolution. But again. If you look, there isn't just one church in Poland. There is, you know, there is the church of Father Josef Tischner, the Krakowian um, philosopher of, of, of solidarity. And then there is the Cardinal Glemp version of Catholicism. And Cardinal Glemp w- was a hardline fundamentalist uh, Catholic leader. Um, and whereas uh, Father Tischner, was uh, very much in a different school of of Catholicism. But both of those um, voices um, are part of Catholic Poland and they're part of, of Solidarność, you know. Glemp was extremely uh, important, as were other 
bishops in the negotiations with Yaruzelski. And Yaruzelski would have spoken a lot about his relationship with uh, members of the hierarchy. Uh, in fact, w- one thing that I really discovered in conversation with General Yaruzelski um, and from talking to uh, people like uh, Iglemp was that the mistake that um, some of the communists made was that they thought that because they had this arrangement whereby they could they could talk to the communists they could they could rep- they they could be the voice of solidarity with the communists and as as many you know people would observe that they got close enough that they would have meals and they would have you know they would have had glasses of vodka with with communists and with and and that very much was the case it was this sort of personal relationship that 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 worked as it were between general yaruzelski and glemp but that it led again yaruzelski into thinking that the church would actually speak in some way in support of uh the the communist party in the first free elections and that was another shock to yaruzelski and he said that to me several times in 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 the interview that they 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 misunderstood the nature of the relationship you know the the communist side mm. yeah yeah i guess they the communists sort of considered themselves as stability and therefore that would yeah. be something that the catholic church would uh uh want to be behind I think you've got that. That's really that's the case. And there was um, uh, a, a leading communist called Stanisław Czosek. He subsequently was ambassador, uh, Polish ambassador to um, uh, Moscow. Um, and I interviewed him several times. And he 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 was one of the also one of the people who who, who did a lot of ter- talking with the church people. And you know you could really take from his analysis that uh, you know the church he almost thought that the church had let them down you know um it it was it's just always important to remember i think when analyzing you know uh, historical events that at the end of the day it's about human beings forming relationships that allow them to do some kind of business together um and i think it's it it you know it it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in relation to lekvoenza and whether or not you know he was or wasn't in some way um compromised by association with the secret police you can be a purist anyone who talked to you know uh, any of these church people who spoke to the communist hierarchy could be seen to be you know besmirched Generally, what those people, in my view, were trying to do was to negotiate small steps at a time. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, of course, uh, relationships of some sort developed. And I I, I certainly know that in the case of Adam Micknick, at some level, at some level, there was some warmth from him towards uh, General Yaruzelski. And I think you can see that pattern of the the personal touching uh, people from very, 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 very different sides of the camp. Um, And I think that argument holds as much for the churchmen 
um, as it does for, um, as I said, the likes of, of Adam Micknick. Um, at the end of the day, people can make deals and produce ends when they trust. Um, and trust is at the heart of what that round table was about. And it's at the heart probably of why uh, the likes of um, Adam Micknick would have defended Jaruzelski because a promise is a promise. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information